0: I always took the scariest job I could find and I would fight for that job. I would fight for the job that is very likely to make me fail. I think that's driven by the second thing that accelerated my career. I always traded status for self-sufficiency. So I started from eBay and you know how it is, you start from a big tech company like somebody will do Google and then Facebook and then they're going to go to Snapchat and you're definitely learning. It's the most successful tech companies of the decade. But at the same time, I feel that you're not necessarily faced with the truth in a hard way in projects that you can fail that creates a sense of alertness and you're really focused you have to focus otherwise you're not going to make it
1: welcome to product with banash i'm axel and in this show i talk to product leaders and experienced operators across europe and beyond together we'll learn about their craft how they build successful products and unpack the frameworks and secrets they've used in delivering growth for their businesses Today, I'm super excited to welcome Mark Sirekas, who is currently VP of Product at ZOE, the Scientifically Advanced Personalized Nutrition Program. Mark is also a product advisor in early-stage startups, helping founding teams from product market fit all the way to scale. Previously, Mark was a founder building a SaaS-enabled marketplace, and before that, an EIR at the biggest publisher in the UK, working with the exec team to diversify the products of the business. Hi, Mark. How are you? Good
0: morning. I'm great. It's great to be here. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. It's, I've been looking for this conversation for a while now because we had a very interesting intro call. <laughs> I think we were both just like nerding out about products. So yeah, exactly. really, really excited to see what this conversation has for us. Before we deep dive into today's topics, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what have been some of the key milestones in your career? Yeah,
0: for sure. So I'm Greek, first of all. So I was born and raised in Athens until when I was 20. My background is in computer science and entrepreneurship. And my journey basically with product management and software, which is really the, my focus started in 2010 when I decided to leave Greece and go to Lapland. So I found myself with many meters of snow surrounding me at minus 40 degrees, not much to do. And I ended up picking up code. So from that point onward, I fell in love with the internet. I knew this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And I came back to Greece, try to launch a company. It was pretty clear to me that I was not, I didn't know what I was doing. Then continued my studies and decided that product management is the area that effectively is going to teach me what I don't know I don't know and uh, I started my career from from eBay where I was working in a much bigger team and a much bigger company but pretty quickly realized this is not the right setup for me. I found it really hard no matter how the feedback could have been positive and the remits were growing but I found it really hard to not have it direct from the market and from the customers as a team was effectively on autopilot. I left and I just shipstead to Scandinavian conglomerate because they were building a very ambitious team in London from scratch and I was leading the ads department as a product manager. And that was fundamentally where I think was the first inflection point in my career as I got to work on a product that was zero to one, but in a very large established organization and reported directly to the chief product officer of this 7,000 person organization and got to see in a very young age how board of director meetings happen. How does that cascade all the way down to product teams. So that really shaped the way that I saw product and understood it was not just about the teams, but also the dynamics within the company. After that, I left and I started building apps on my own because I realized growth was something really important in distribution. So the positioning of the product and the benefits of the product, you need to translate them to growth. And then after I built a couple of apps and learned how to communicate and distribute the apps, I joined publisher organization to diversify their portfolio of businesses then they funded me i raised more venture funding and i started a business which i ran for three years and after that journey came to an end i joined zoe to build and scale the product team as we're growing to help uh, millions of people with uh, their health that's a little bit of a journey
1: Brilliant. Very interesting. So tell us a little bit about Zoe. What What are you guys doing there? What's the value prop and what are some of the problems you're solving for your customers?
0: Yeah. So Zoe is the most advanced scientific and personalized nutrition program. And what that means and every single word in that sentence is something that we take very seriously and it's a core part of our customer experience. So our customers come to us to improve their health and improve their weight. And they don't just want one more piece of advice. They want to know the truth. They want to understand truly how their body is impacted by what they're eating. There's many reasons why someone might turn to Zoe and it varies from traditional weight loss. Yo yo dieting has led somebody to a state of despair. It's very hard to be trying all your life to achieve something and then going back to zero. And we think we have a more sustainable solution toward that. And also for other reasons, expanding your life and also improving the quality of your life is a main reason for our customers to join. When your body changes, so through some sort of condition, or if you're in a life stage, like menopause, that can really change how your body reacts and you're feeling like a foreigner in your body. And so these are really important reasons why somebody wants a more scientific solution. And so what Zoe does is that for the very first time, we try to expose the science behind metabolic health and your long-term gut health by actually testing you. So we accept that every person's body reacts differently and the advice needs to be tailored toward that. People do a series of tests at ZOE to understand their metabolic health, and then they get their own personalized results upon which we build a program that helps them go from point A to point B in their journey.
1: Sounds good. Challenges around wellness and personal image, people feeling well or not well in their bodies, etc., these have been around for a while. How are you guys at Zoe doing things differently?
0: You're right. They have been around for a while, and we felt that the solutions were not necessarily satisfactory in the sense of like we could do much more. So Zoe didn't follow this traditional conventional wisdom of build something small and test it out and whatnot. And it was not possible because for the very big part of its first years, Zoe focused on science. So we run the largest nutritional studies in the world to prove some of the claims that we're making within the product. And if you think about it, it was basically an R&D project. It was always private, but it started as an R&D project. And this relates to some of the values that we have in the company. We like to think things deeply. And in this case, we went very deeply to really understand from first principles, some of the conventional wisdom and where it could fail. Perhaps this is one of the things that we're doing differently. And I think the second thing that we're doing differently is that usually these kinds of companies stay on this R&D phase, but we are Mm -hmm. very focused on our customers. So the customer obsession runs through every part of the company. And we try to make this as an experience for everybody to not only be a citizen scientist, but also change their lives and be direct to consumers.
1: Brilliant. Can you tell us a little bit how the teams, the product teams are structured at Zoe? So I'm really interested to understand how trying to solve this problem in a different way, going deeper, as you mentioned, having a deeper understanding of the problem, how does that materialize in terms of the work the product team is doing?
0: First of all, I think the shadow of the founders cascades all the way down. So if you're working in a company where the founders are aligned with a particular way the product teams work They're easy to materialize whereas in other cases it might be very hard so in our case our founders are setting very high bar starting with our members as a core principle and so the product team thus is enabled to work and think like that and it all starts with our vision we have a vision of helping millions improve their lives and we believe that healthcare is going to switch towards more preventative measures and nutrition is going to be at a core part of it So understanding that vision and cascading down all the way to how we do product every single day is at the core of the company. I was talking to another product leader the other day and I was explaining our product development process. And I'm not sure if this was good or bad, you're gonna be the judge of it, but he said, this is the most opinionated user-centric approach I've heard ever. (laughs) So I, I guess he said that because I was describing how tightly connected research is with product development. Zoe, everything starts with a customer problem. So instead of having a roadmap, that's the core artifact of the product team, we actually have a customer problem backlog. In the customer problem backlog, we add problems. Every team adds problems as they're finding them along the way. And this is the culmination effectively of all the research that they have done. The research that we're doing starts with an observation and the observation can come from anywhere. Somebody read a review from a customer, or we noticed something in the data or it was a customer interview that a customer said something that sparked our attention. And what that does is it starts a chain reaction of our process internally, which is we start with the customer problem. We understand that there's something there and we start talking to customers. So we start with plain user interviews around a specific hypothesis. We heard something and now we wanna go a little bit deeper. And then we go in our problem validation phase. So the problem validation phase tries to understand how much does the customer acknowledge that they have this problem, whether they have tried to basically solve this problem, and if they're looking still for a solution. So these are the three things that we want to understand in order to classify this as an important problem. And we do this by using customer journey maps. So we track their whole journey, their touch points with our product and with other products in solving that problem. So we understand and empathize a lot with their context. Are they having that problem when they're sitting the couch and they're on their phone or is it something that they're out and about and they cannot even they're wearing their headphones running somewhere fast so we try to be very much in the mind of the customer so once we find those low points in that journey then what we try to do is we have isolated effectively what could be opportunities for a better experience and then we try to figure out if these are prevalent so we know if they're severe because we understand how much the customer has tried to solve them and now we're trying to understand if they're prevalent. So that's when we switch from our customer interviews to getting more quantitative feedback. Quantitative feedback could be all sorts of things. Could be anything from surveys with scales all the way to free and open text that we then use in order to classify and cluster. So we do a lot of work with large amounts of text actually. And so we have a situation where we start from just a simple observation. Somebody said, we then go deep to understand if the problem is severe and what they've tried to solve it and what's the customer journey what's the alternatives all the way to understanding the severity and the prevalence of the problem in a quantitative fashion and then we prioritize them so effectively at any given point the only thing we're looking at is what are those customer problems and that's the starting of the journey that's like what the day-to-day looks like and then we connect it to our strategy and vision
1: it's really interesting because when you describe the process It reminds me of some of the deep work involved in doing, for example, jobs to be done, using jobs to be done as a framework, really understanding the levers and dimensions of what are the motivations, fears, anxieties, struggles, aspirations of users in specific contexts. Is there like a Zoe way of doing this in the product team or are you guys
0: using some pretty standard frameworks? So first of all, we are definitely fans of jobs we be done. We talk about them all the time and we've done foundational research with using demand side sales formula to understand exactly those motivations of the customers. And we use that a lot for marketing and sure. this comes a lot. So there's definitely these are our starting routes. And I think what we are doing differently and where it changes is that we try to normalize inputs, which are the problems and try to have a global stack ranked problem backlog. So that's something that we're doing internally. First of all, we have vast amounts of open text that comes with surveys and MPS scores and whatnot, which we then track over time. And we see trends around concepts and topics of problems. Normalization, to go back, is what does it do? It basically tries to boil every single problem down to a unit that irrespective of what the metric or the the business strategy might be at any given point, it helps you stack rank a problem. So we normalize everything down to time, emotional effort, or money that's cost for a customer to do this. And then by looking, by doing this intervention, then what we're tracking is effectively if the clusters of problems that we have decrease in time. So we, we look at that more on the broad, on the broad experience as well. That's really interesting. I had a conversation
1: recently with somebody, with the chief product officer at Doodle, and she was telling me about this concept of freedom through constraints. It sounds like the team, if they have like these boundaries and these guidelines or guide rails, then can have more latitude in how they explore these problems. Is that right? Does that mean more autonomy for the team?
0: Autonomy is really important for product teams. I think by now it's becoming clear in a consensus that is the case, but the reason might not always be something that we all agree on. I think autonomy is really important because first of all, it's a key part of creating drive for the individual. And at the same time, it also creates efficiency and speed for the organization. There's less communication complexity, less reviews. If there is a structure, that allows this autonomy, you can go faster. So that's the first point. The second point is that different teams might need different things. So some teams might need more coaching and some other teams might need more direction. And if you do have a specific framework all the way from the very beginning, from the foundation and the vision of the company down to principles that are guiding every feature, then you can have this level of optionality within each team. So we came down to those five notions or big customer problems that if we solve them, and we solve them much better than anybody else, then we will have irreversibly changed the way the industry works and we'll have achieved our vision. And so we have those core fundamentals and every single team is always working on those fundamentals. So the first point is, are your teams are working on something that's relevant to the business or are they working on something that's not relevant? And that's how we manage that. We're basically asking the teams, is this directly assisting any one of the five fundamentals? So that's the first question. Then the second question is the problem you're solving important. So I think we address that through how we're doing research and how we're prioritizing through the severity and the prevalence of the problems. And then finally, you need to have some principles when it comes down to development of features so that the teams know what great looks like, what the business is going to accept. So we manage this in two ways. We have principles for the product team, which we have co-crafted. And recently discussed and revamped some of them. We might touch on this later. And also at the same time, we focus very much on success metrics. So what does success looks like for any feature that you're building? And that effectively reflects a solution to the customer problem they've defined without, yeah. without being solution focused.
1: I was actually going to ask, how do you reconcile? I know you talked about prioritization earlier. I'm interested to understand how do you reconcile the Solving customer problems part with the business outcomes part, like
0: how does that work? There's very rare times that we've had a metric that's been like increased 5% conversion. Perhaps that has to do with the nature of the business. I can understand that in different type of business, maybe a more known and mature business model, then this could be different. But it's always effectively changing fundamentally everything we know about nutrition. And both the business and the customer experience are consistently changing because we are in the forefront of science. And so you see, we need to be completely adaptable. So what we do instead of focusing on business outcomes is we're focusing completely on solving those customer problems. And if we're really consistent and objective around how important a customer problem is, then there is agreement. And I think the process that we have come down to with A, using the fundamentals to guide us, B, being extremely customer-focused, and C, mixing the research methods. So it's not like we talk to two customers, and it's not like we run a survey. It's we talk to the customers, we isolated the points of the experience, then we quantified how important these are, and here's how these map to the fundamental that we want to move. So once you do that, effectively, you have alignment all the way from the top to the bottom, and you can prioritize. And you're taking this premise, which is if you're solving the customer problems, then they're basically going to love the product And the business is going to have a value. So we don't use business metrics and we're aligned completely on agreeing on the format of coming up with those customer problems.
1: One of the things I also want to go back to is when you're trying to change a category and an industry in this completely transformational way at this level, in my mind at least, it has implications, right? I'm trying to understand how some of these incremental changes you're doing in the product Ultimately, ladder up to an industry-wide movement or change, making sure you're going in the right direction, like you were talking about before. How do you guys ensure that you're moving the needle? Some of the fundamentals you mentioned before.
0: That is a great question, and I think it's very important for companies to be true to themselves about how they're measuring that, because in the end of the day, that's the change you're going to bring in the world. Let me give an example of another company. I'll come back to Zoe. So. Rewind the clocks 25 years ago. If you wanted to order something, you know, it would take 14 days to arrive. Then Amazon comes in and says, great customer experience is the key. That's what we're going to obsess about. That's what we're going to focus on. And shipping time is a big part of that. And so they start crunching down the time and they go all the way to Amazon prime one day delivery. If anybody does delivery more than one day now, they're slow, right? They've yeah. changed the standard. Same thing for their customer support, same thing for their catalog. So A to Z, right? Like they have everything. And so I think that example crystallized very much like what fundamentals means. You figure out what are the things that matter, what are the big customer problems in the industry you're in, and you just absolutely crush them. You basically do 10x better than your competitor, and you focus only on those things. You don't focus on anything else. So in our case, we have, our fundamentals are, First of all, about understanding your body. We wanted to switch away from opinions all the way down to science. So all our science departments, we're publishing papers specifically around the efficacy of our interventions. And we're very transparent about that. So we're transparent to the world, which means we're transparent to ourselves. Then the personalization, the advice that we're giving, we're tracking that with surveys. And specifically, we're only interested in the people that give us the maximum score. So we're always asking, what's the percentage of people that are giving us the maximum score of personalization? How personalized do they think it is, right? The effort is exactly the same. So we're asking them how easy did you find to, to follow the program? And this is also standardized questions like the MPS, like how easy did you find to use the app? How easy did you find to do this flow? Like a lot of companies are asking that. And then you have basically improved health and improved weight, which we're also tracking. And it's an objective measure, right? If, if your cholesterol has decreased, that's a very objective measure after doing an intervention, and this is effectively what you want to do. You want to be very honest with yourself about those fundamentals because the jobs to be done by the customers are to improve their health, to live a better life, to feel more energetic, to feel like less loaded and constipated. And if you track all those and you can do them and you can do them fast in an easy way, then you're winning.
1: Do you feel stuck not knowing
0: how to tackle a problem? Are you looking for a solution to help your team members grow in their craft? Either way, check out panache.io. Panache works with product leaders to bring expert insights and proven frameworks you can use to truly deliver impact in your role. Companies like Atlassian, ContentSquare, and Miracle all choose Panache to provide the right level of training and coaching for their product teams so they can perform at their best. Whether you're a product leader or an individual contributor, head to panache.io, book a seat to one of our many programs and raise your product game today. Check out panache.io, that's P-A-N-A-S-H.io.
1: When you're describing the way things work at ZOE, To me, it sounds like things are super structured. There's like a format for everything. And it's almost like you're describing the end state of something. I'm
0: really interested and curious to understand how did you get there? That's a great question. So I think it all starts with company values. The company values are effectively evangelizing certain behaviors. And if you have buy-in from all your company, then it's much easier to maintain those values on the day-to-day basis. So when the company values were done, and this was a great lesson to see, they were done and they were distributed to all the company for everybody to have input on them. Everybody had comments and everybody explained how much they identify with them and commented on specific phrasing. So that created a lot of cohesion when we went to the final version of it. And this is a key way that we do a lot of things, which is we move very fast on a proposal, we distribute it, we get comments, And then listening is not necessarily agreeing but it does mean that everybody has everyone has their say right everyone has their say and so that in itself is a key habit that we have in everything we're doing and in the product development process i was noticing a few things on the one hand we wanted to be extremely customer centric but human experiences which are visceral are very hard to translate so you talk to a customer and you see their pain point and you have this rich experience and you come to me and you're like, hey, Mark, this is a big problem. I'm like, I'm not sure, I disagree. I don't really feel it. So that was a big problem. And I think a lot of companies have this problem, right? Where their product teams go, they're told to do customer research, they do customer research, they come back, their manager or the business unit or however the business is run, disagrees. And they don't see the importance of the problem and that creates frustration. So then the second principle that we have after start with our members is dive deep and be scientific. So we started thinking, okay, what is a way that we can actually use qualitative data in such a fashion that it can become meaningful? And I think that's what started giving a place and the emphasis to our mixed methods that we're using continuously, which led us to transition from this idea of we're speaking to a couple of customers or three or four or five, to we spoke to five customers, we specifically identified the pain points, we're finding them in keywords and clusters, which we're tracking month over month to validate, And then our surveys are always like the confidence interval is basically 95%. So we can prove something is a problem. And we have also explained all the alternatives. And by normalizing the input down to this is costing the customer X amount of dollars a month. And they're using a competitor to solve that problem. It becomes very real. And so everybody's really empowered to have this conversation irrespective of level if they're following that process, because we have all accepted that This is a decent process for us to communicate. And I think that was the first part. The second part that was happening was, is everybody aligned? So yes, Axel, you found a problem, but is it really aligned with our strategy? That was a second problem that we found, which we then led us to understand this concept of fundamentals. We're like, what are the really the important things that we need to be obsessing about? So in our case, for instance, personalization of advice and understanding your body with a key scientific principles are two things that we're always pushing. So if you came to us and said, hey, we're going to work on this because we found this customer problem around personalization, then it's a pass. So that was the second part around alignment. And the third one was around quality, which is, do you actually have the necessary quality to launch something? We have also a very opinionated point around what quality looks like and how you should be releasing software. And our thesis is that you should be releasing craftwork, not patchwork. And that is determined by the success metrics, which are creating a sense of cohesion around both your squad and also like how the business sees what your level of ambition, what your level of craft is by effectively explaining where you wanna be for the customer.
1: I'm gonna go back to something you mentioned. You talked about craft work and not patchwork. So my understanding is that you're going to almost have gatekeepers to the quality of the stuff you're shipping out there. What does that mean? What does that involve? Because part of me thinks that if you're doing this, then Maybe it means that the fidelity of the stuff you're putting out there must be higher, which in turn means that maybe you're not shipping as
0: often. I can definitely see why that sounds like a trade-off. And this is something that we have also discussed internally. I also want to say that the gatekeeping is very interesting of how we actually do it because the teams are autonomous. Maybe we can touch on this later. Let me take a step back over the past 12 years. We've had two main trends and themes that happened in product development. We had the lean startup and we had a lot of YC companies becoming really successful, the Airbnbs of the world, Dropbox, Stripe, and that shaped a group thing that has effectively replaced the big and bold ambitions with really three words, minimum viable product. And. On the one hand absolutely you should do your innovation accounting and learn but on the other hand what has happened is a lot of companies are not focusing on being insanely great so that's the first part and zoe is a product that when our customers are adopting it they're changing their lives fundamentally and what i mean by that is they often change what they read how they sleep how they exercise how they eat for sure and even also what they believe in so Often internally, we refer to ZOE being a philosophy rather than a product. And philosophy doesn't have an MVP. And so what that means is that you need to approach your your whole product development in a different set of principles that allow you to be responsible about the impact you're having because it's healthcare. And at the same time, deeply understand and align with the product value proposition, which is... We are trying to be the best, most scientific, most personalized program in the world, can't shoot stuff, see what sticks. So that basically means that we have changed very much how we do product. Now, speed is a very relative thing. If you're in a very fast dinghy and you're moving in the waves, you might be feeling it going very fast. But if you're looking at the same boat from like 10,000 feet, it looks like it's inert and speed is one measure, but velocity also shows direction. And so you can think of direction as really, uh, the second component of what we're looking at. We believe that prioritization is what drives speed. And that's why we're focusing extremely on finding the right customer problems and isolating everything that we're not going to do from the things that we are going to do. And once we find out what we are going to do, then we take time to know that we're going to do that 10 times better. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And from what you're saying, it sounds like
1: you guys are not doing MVPs. You're not doing MVPs. Which I think is quite interesting, right? Because just like you mentioned, there's years of formalized knowledge and practice in product management that have made MVPs this thing. And like you said, I think it's part of experimentation and building things in thin slices is is part of how people do product now. It's really interesting to hear from a company that has a completely different approach.
0: There's always exceptions to the rule. And this is not a cop-out, but let me explain what I mean. So first of all, we do use A-B tests religiously and everything goes through an A-B test because of the scientific principles that we have. So that's one thing. And we don't look just at first order effects. Is the conversion higher or did the customer do move X more? But we also look at second order effects. What did that do for their health? What did that do for the fundamentals that we have? So that's the first point. The second point is that we do launch alpha releases, but we just do them in a very small scale. So we will do something incrementally with a very clear idea of what the hypotheses are. And then we might learn from that fast, but we don't ship stuff that's not made to last, or we don't ship stuff that's not a delightful experience to all our customers. We have alpha groups and beta groups of customers that are willing to do that. And we've carefully selected the sample as well so that they both fit into different jobs to be done. And also they're not like all the super interested customers so we are getting biased feedback. So we do run tests and we do run experiments and we do ship as fast as we can, but we just don't do that in production. That, that makes sounds
1: sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Thanks for clarifying. I'm also really interested to understand the role the team is playing as an in individual product managers in your team, radically transforming this category in this industry. My underlying question is, how are you enabling the teams, helping them to grow, upskill, get the right level of coaching and training to actually do this level of change in the industry? Because it's not going to happen overnight of course, but I'm really interested to know, how are you supporting them?
0: That's a great question. It's very dear to my heart and I'm learning as well on that topic quite a lot. I'm going to go back to company values because I think that everything starts from there. Once you have the company values, you understand what behaviors you want to excite more in people and instigate. And and product management has an intersection with those kinds of values. For instance, if the company wants to move fast and act fast is one of our values, then surely you do want the product management function to to inherit that, right? So there's an inheritance relationship there. Similarly to your scientific principles and similarly to how you start with your members. So what then that culminates into is a growth framework. So the product management team has a growth framework of competencies and how those look at different levels. And one key difference that I'm championing and pushing hard for is that these the differences between levels rely as little as possible on status and experience and as much as possible improving competence. So for example, we're gonna use less often the fact that you have worked on a product team with 10 product managers for four plus years. This is not something that should be part of your growth framework, but saying that you have consistently proven that you can move the needle in products or mentor other product managers to move faster or the design team claims that you have improved the quality of the designs or helped with XYZ aspect of the collaboration is key. So the growth framework is key for us and it revolves around helpfulness around execution, ability to identify and size opportunities, the ability to set success metrics for the business and for the product, the ability to influence and inspire others. That's a big one in the product management function. And also the ability to take feedback, course correct, make your team better. So There is a big overlap between the values of the company and how we want the product management team to work. So once they have that rubric, then what happens is that rubric does become a survey, right? It becomes a survey where we ask, did Axel inspire the team? Tell us about an example where he did, or tell us about an example where Axel found an insight that was controversial and through data and qualitative research and mixed methods, he actually proved that this was the case. That growth framework becomes a survey and then their peers publicly and transparently respond with examples around that, not with scores. So I've made a very clear point about not having scores because it has to be with a positive intent and with an aim to assist the feedback always. So that's why it's public and that's why it doesn't have scores because is three better than four? Is it 3.5? What does that mean? And
1: Also, I find that specifically when you're navigating human complexities, because at the end of the day, this is a people thing, right? Completely. It it just makes sense that the angle you're attacking this from is humane and qualitative versus something that is like score-based,
0: right? Absolutely. And so then you're going back to the person and you're like, okay, look, here's all the examples that not just me, but like your team thinks that you nailed. And here's some examples and specifically what they think given the specific area that you want to develop in that they think you can do better. And so that helps the person like taking in a holistic view, understand that it's not really believing human bias as well, right? So I don't think that your manager can always have the best opinion of your work. They're not there all the time. And then the 360, if you have a company culture that enables the feedback that people feel comfortable about it, that people ask for it, my PM is ask for that feedback, then obviously, it's going to be a very powerful tool. To create the self-awareness and to become pointed. And so I think that their careers and how they're becoming generally better at their craft and that leads to progression is actually very much within their hands. They feel empowered to work on those stuff and understand what it takes to go to the next level rather than be some opaque, transparent, untransparent situation where maybe your manager chose or didn't choose to promote you, and so on and so forth.
1: That's great. Thank you for sharing. We're coming up to my favorite part of the show, which is the treasure chest. It's basically a segment of the show where I ask guests for what have been some of the most helpful resources they've used previously, key accelerators in their career, and some advice they could give to other product people out there. So let's start with the resources section. What have been some of the most helpful resources you've
0: used that have helped you really deliver impact in your career as a product person? The most helpful thing I've done for my career is build apps on my own by far. And the reason for that is I have seen where all the frameworks have limitations. I have been humble enough to understand that I don't know what I don't know, or sometimes I don't know what I think I know. And that left me with a very strong aftertaste of only the customer knows what they want. So by building stuff and failing, but not in a cushy environment like a big tech organization, like a Fang or something like that, you can get that. You can get that taste. Two professors of mine in the business school at Imperial College really affected the way that I view business models and what does a great business model look like? We had a class where we only talked about business model and intellectual property. And they gave us examples of companies that were like loss making, but their investors kept on funding them for 20 years. Or we started with those kinds of examples that are unknown mostly to the world. And we analyzed specifically how their functions of each one of those departments reinforces the whole business. So there's a couple of books that they have written. The first book is called Models of Opportunity, How Entrepreneurs Design Firms to Achieve the Unexpected, that I think really completely changed The way I think narratives, narrative-based design, and, and why it's important, and it's more than words. It's about creating a coherent story of how something will create change. And the second book was called the Business Model Book, Design, Build, and Adapt Business Ideas that Drive Business Growth. And there, they're approaching it with a little bit more of a technical approach, where they're showing almost like in a physics way, almost like in a leverage way of how one action trickles down to a chain reaction outside. And so I guess they're creating a more technical understanding of what does it mean to be viral from a business unit economics approach. So those two books gave me a very holistic way of looking at product. And then after that, I thought I read a book early on, which was called Lean Analytics, that was how you would structure like analytics for different business models and different types of products. And that kind of reinforced my yeah. metrics focused uh, way of thinking. Zero to one, I think completely made me think only about competitive advantage and how do you create something that is hard to compete with, right? And this is very much reflected in our discussion around craft work as well. Paul Grahams, hackers and painters, and generally like Y Combinator, I think has been the most useful school of thought, proven school of thought as well, despite the fact that you might not agree with everything. And I think these are the most important that come to mind. Thanks for sharing.
1: Next question. What would you say are or have been the key accelerators in your career? Now, it could be mentorship, training, learning, being coached by someone. It could be anything actually.
0: Yeah. So that's a great question. I've thought about this quite a lot as well. So the first thing is I always took the scariest job I could find. And I would fight for that job. I would fight for the job that is very likely to make me fail. When I joined Shipstead, I was working on a product line that was very safe and it was dependent on another product line. But I fought to get the advertising product, which was very hard because we had 40 different companies and they're all run like solo, like islands. And we need to build a product that they all wanted to use and launch it and do some incredible, many millions of dollars of revenue. And I just jumped into it. So I was always taking the scariest route to, to something. When you do this... What's your thinking? Are you thinking, I'm going to
1: do this because I'm going to learn more and faster? Like I'm curious to understand
0: what's the upside of taking the scariest job. I think that's driven by the second thing that accelerated my career. I always traded status for self-sufficiency. So I started from eBay, right? And you know how it is. You start from a big tech company, all the other big tech companies are trying to hire you. And I got a lot of CVs, like somebody will do. I don't know, like Google and then Facebook, and then they're going to go to Snapchat and they're going to do the cycle. You're, right? you're part of the mold. You're part of the mold. You're definitely learning. It's the most successful tech companies of the decade. You're definitely learning, and there's some iconic companies. But at the same time, I feel that you're not necessarily faced with the truth in a hard way. And so what does that mean? It means that at eBay, I felt always successful, but the company was an autopilot, right? I didn't really do anything. Whereas like in projects that you can fail, that creates a sense of alertness. And you're really focused. You have to focus, otherwise you're not gonna make it. And the market is really your mirror. It tells you truly who you really are and what you can do. And that is also why I left even Shipstead because I realized that the product was doing well that I built, but I didn't grow it. So I left it to start an app because I was feeling the necessity to be able to grow something on my own. And so I think that's the reason why I chose jobs that are very unconventional and sometimes early on people will be like, why do you take that job?
1: It's interesting because when you mention alertness, I had this mental picture of Squid Game, the TV show. <laughs> so intense. I was putting
0: myself I was not gonna die, but I was putting myself <laughs> in tough situations. Yeah. And then the third thing is I think I intuitively chose managers, investors, and people that I could learn from. I could learn from a lot and they were much better than what where I was for what I wanted to do at that point. And I think that is true to this day. I've never had a manager that was bad for me. From everybody, I was learning a lot. So I chose managers, not jobs.
1: Brilliant. I think this is one of the pieces of advice that comes back episode after episode, is really, don't really choose the job, Choose a a manager, somebody that is, is going to be a multiplicator, going to make you really grow and accelerate your career. So thanks for sharing that. What advice would you give your early career self? So thinking back, looking back at your career so far, let's think, I don't know, you were talking about 12 years ago. So think about 12 years ago. What would you tell
0: this young Mark? Everyone's carrying their own cross, be empathetic and start with yourself. I've definitely seen that with myself, but a lot of people who aspire to to do something and they want to get better, harder, faster, stronger, there's this kind of bravado for a lack of a more gender neutral word, which is, oh, you have to be rough and show no weakness. And I think that's changing, of course, with mm-hmm. the time, but I think I was susceptible to that and I was not kind to myself and that made it much harder to see the real opportunities to to take help from people that genuinely wanted to help me, but I thought like maybe it was not helpful at that time. And also that reflected a lot in the way that I I interacted with other people, right? I had a very single-minded focus on getting great at one thing and doing that one thing. And I think it doesn't work like that, first of all. I think the premise of being hard with yourself is actually false. I think it doesn't help you. It hinders you, even if the moment you're packed with adrenaline, I actually think it hinders you. So that's the first thing, be empathetic and start with yourself. The second thing is form your micro-world, your bubble, as soon as possible. That sounds really tricky, but let me explain what I mean. There's no reason to try to please the masses. You just need to be with the people that you choose. And of course, you have to be open to external advice. But if you stop expending energy on things that you haven't chosen, that are not truly priorities for you, you're going to really focus and enjoy life much more. And so these two are definitely true for product development and for a career. A lot of people take jobs just because the status or they feel it's a successful thing and they don't ask themselves, like, do I really want to do that? Is that what I want to do? And then on product building, and this works for me, and I've seen people being successful without doing this. Know the change you want to make in the world. That's number one. Start with a vision. If you don't have a very clear vision of what you're trying to do, You will never see it happen. Only work in problems that you'll be willing to work for 10 years, even if the salary is not satisfying. That's the second one. And then the third one is that passion and hard work always trumps skill in the long run. Great. Thank you. Very wise words. Before
1: I let you go, I'm going to ask you the last question for today, which is also one of my favorite. Now, Imagine you're on a deserted island and is it a riddle <laughs> and you've got these two wishes but hold on they're very specific right you can have an endless supply of one specific dish and you can take one book with you for the rest of time right so endless supply of one very specific dish so if you say pizza you have to tell me which pizza and you can take one book with you. So what would that dish be and what would that
0: book be? The first one is much harder than the second. So let me start from the second. I would take Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. I would easily read it again. And every time would tell me something different or I would find different meaning. The dish is hard. I'm Greek, we have a pretty good cuisine. and <laughs> Our neighbors have a pretty good cuisine as well. well. I think I would go with some version of pasta, betraying my own roots. What would that be though? I th- <laughs> I, I I don't know why, but I'm a sucker for a pesto pasta dish with pine nuts and basil and th- something like that. I think I can eat that every day. There's there's
1: a lot of elegance in the simplicity of Italian cuisine. I always say that, so I don't blame you. What would you take? It's even harder for me, actually. A lot of people don't know this, but back when I was in London, at some point I was a product manager. I was thinking about dropping everything and becoming a chef. Oh, wow! So I went to cooking school, and I took evening classes for a few months at Leafs, which is one of the best uh, culinary schools in London. And it was like this intensive program. And I've always been very passionate about the food and cooking and wine and all this stuff. And my five years in London, London provided all of these options that I didn't have before. And I come from Mauritius, which is a tropical island, which itself is like this melting pot of all these other cultures, right? So food is a big part of my life. So choosing one dish for the rest of my life, it's not going to be easy, but I'll tell you this. One thing I really love is this, this Indian flatbread called roti, right? Mm. Ancient people have like a flaky version of this called roti chanai, I think, which is like this. It's just beautiful with lamb curry. I can eat that every day.
0: Wow. Very specific and, yeah. and and very thought through and from an expert. What's the book? <laughs> the
1: book, it's uh, the, the Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, which is like a book that has had some profound impact on me. When I was in high school, I read it before high school, just as a book you would casually. And then we studied in my French literature class in high school, we studied the book. And it's there was this like onion peeling effect where I was Because I read it as a boy, I only read it at level one at the surface. And then studying it in French lit meant that I could like peel off the layers and try and understand what was going on underneath. And it just was very transformational in the sense that I learned a lot of stuff about myself. Yeah, I'd take that book.
0: Wow. Very interesting and very insightful. I have read that book. So I think I understand maybe why you it's a beautiful book. Appreciate it. Yeah.
1: Mark, I want to thank you so much for the time you spend with me on the show. It was a very cool
0: conversation.
1: Good luck with all the work you're doing at Zoe. And yeah, hopefully we get to speak soon.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and love the podcast. Thank you.
1: If you're hearing this, you've listened to this episode all the way. And for that, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite platform. Also, if you have a minute, please consider giving us a rating as it helps other listeners find the show. You can find all the episodes and resources on panash.io podcast. That's P-A-N-A-S-H dot ioslash podcast.
0: Until next time.